The movement of the gospel has been expanding outward since we started this study. Uh, We've seen from the very beginning of this book, Jesus promised his disciples, the resurrected Lord promised the disciples that uh, the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we've been seeing, witnessing as we read through the book is that spread. It's the spread of the gospel going outward, outward, outward. And today we, we come to uh, the spread of the gospel to the city of Antioch. Uh, Just a little bit of history about Antioch. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world at that time. Uh, It was a major metropolitan business district. Lots of business came in and out uh, of Antioch. This is the Antioch. That's the capital city of Syria. So it's it's a huge city. Over half a million people called it home and many more flooded in on a day to day uh, basis. This city, like many other metropolitan cities, was spiritually dark. Um, I spent a good many years, a few years in New Orleans as I worked on my master's. And uh, as I read about the city of Antioch, it reminded me of New Orleans. Anybody ever been to Bourbon Street in New Orleans? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) I'm teasing. But it just, as I read about Antioch, it reminded me of the French Quarter and Bourbon Street and all of that kind of where the business is crazy and the people are crazy as well. So, as you can imagine, Antioch being filled with all kinds of idolatry and paganism and a hypersexualized type of community, mythological worship and, and godlessness. It was perfectly suited to become the hub for global mission. Isn't that amazing how God often chooses the most unsuspecting people and places to do his greatest work? Let me tell you something. That's hope for us, right? It's all about grace. So what was it about this church in Antioch that kept them riding the wave of God's favor? Well, it's just that. The Bible says, and we'll read in a moment, that the hand of the Lord was with them. There's no overstating the significance of this reality. We often pray as we should. Lord, let us be your hands and feet. I think that's a great prayer. I think that's probably a lot of the motivating factor behind what happens with Habitat for Humanity. Lord, we want to be your hands and feet, practically blessing people around us. It's a great way to pray. But in this case, the Lord Jesus was actively moving the pieces like a chess master would move a pawn or the rook or the queen. He's moving the pieces around strategically as these people yielded their lives to his leadership. So in Antioch, we see how God's mission births God's church. I want you to hear that because that's the sequence where it should naturally happen. The mission of God births the church of God. That's the natural flow. When God's people faithfully make disciples, churches are born. The mission of God has a church. It's not the other way around. You know, we shouldn't ever as a church wonder what is our mission? 
Because the church is actually born out of mission. The reason we exist is because of the mission of God. We are partners in his already working. We join him in what he's already doing. We're not organizing a group and then asking him to do something. The Antioch church, we'll see in the weeks to come, will be the launching pad for sending missionaries and starting church, a church planting movement. And they're going to do it all over the world. This is going to be the launching pad for global mission. So I want us to begin praying today. May he do it again. May God do it again. And may he do it with us. Take your Bibles and stand with me, if you will. Acts chapter 11. We're going to read verses 19 through 30. 19 to the end of the chapter. Bible says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke in the Hellenist also to the Hellenist also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father... Would you please add your blessing to the reading, preaching of your word? We're here today to hear from you. Open our ears in Jesus' name. Amen. So we brought Acts chapter 10 to a close with the culture-shaking salvation of Cornelius. And through Cornelius' story, we see that this gospel is not just for Jews. It's for everyone. But sometimes, new revelation doesn't always break us out of our old ruts. Somebody say amen right there. Sometimes when you learn something new, it's still hard to get out of the rut of the way you used to do things. Right? Um, I know uh, I used to do some four-wheeling when I was a kid, and I, I know riding on that four-wheeler, sometimes I'd get caught in a rut. 
And the problem was my, my brothers had dug the ruts and they always run into trees. So if you didn't get out of the rut, you were going to hit the tree. And what I learned is the best way to get out of a rut is not gently. It's not gracefully. You'll never get out just sort of slowly steering. You have to kind of jerk the handle, right? You got to jerk it, hit the gas, and it'll pop you out of the rut. When the Lord shows us something drastically new like he does with Cornelius, there's no graceful way to get out of our old ways. You just got to pop the handle and change. But as we begin here in Acts 11, we get in verse 19. And what we see is that as the church scatters to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, there's still many who are only speaking the word of Christ to no one except the Jews. In spite of the fact that God had shown just one verse earlier, the Bible says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted Repentance that leads to life. God had shown himself as the savior of all. There were still many who were uh, excluding some and only preaching to their kind of people. Let's get our grips for a moment on what's happening here. If you remember back to Acts chapter 8, Stephen had been martyred. Saul had come in with a harsh persecution and the people were scattered and they went about preaching. It was like what the the suffering that the enemy intended to stomp out the spread of the gospel only served to spread the gospel. What the enemy intended for evil, God meant it for good. We'll, We'll hear more about that in a moment, but. They went about preaching, but most of them stuck to their own kind of people, the Jews. But praise God for some other people, right? Praise God for those uh, we might would call them heroes. They're the movers and shakers. They're the ones who are like, oh, this gospel goes to others. I'm on it. And they go. They jerk the handle and they go. There are those who preach the gospel of Jesus to those who are far from God. They went to Bourbon Street, right? And they walked down Bourbon Street and saw people who are desperately far from God. And they said, let me tell you about my Jesus. This is a beautiful mission. And you know what God did? The Bible says God put his hand upon them. The hand of the Lord was with them. The Lord Jesus was blessing them. So from our scripture today, what I want us to see is the church that God uses. The church that God uses. I want us to see at least three things about this church in Antioch that I think are uh, perfect parallels to who we need to be as a church. So the first thing is this. The church God uses is radically Christ-centered. The church God uses is radically Christ-centered. You'll notice in their preaching, they preach the Lord Jesus. There's no, there's no uh, ambiguity about their message. It's directly about Jesus as Lord. What I want us to know is um, a few things about Jesus. According to their message, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. 
Jesus is nobody's sidekick. He doesn't come alongside you as your sidekick, as your navigator, as your co-pilot. Jesus is the hero. It's not your story that he sprinkles a little bit of happy juice on. It's his story that he's welcoming you to be a part of. This is his story. We're just here to tell it. And this church is radically Christ-centered. What they say when they walk into a massive city of people far from God is they say, what you need is a redeemer, a rescuer, a hero. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the goal. We read in verse 21 that as people believed, they turned to the Lord. That's the touchdown line. That's what success is in evangelism is for someone to turn to Christ. Someone to um, to turn to the Lord. Now, success, obviously, as we share the gospel, is just faithfulness to present and share the gospel. But our ultimate hope is that people would turn to Christ, that they would be reconciled to God. First Peter 3.18 says that's the whole reason Jesus came. He came to suffer the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The goal is Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus is the power So it's a Christ-centered message, right? Jesus is the power. Verse 21, we we see the the source of their power, the reason why they're successful, the reason why God is blessing it. There's no ambiguity here either. It says the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, make no mistake, when we read the, the, the word Lord in this text, it's specifically talking about Jesus. They were seeing Christ at work. They were acknowledging his powerful working, yielding their lives to him and celebrating what he's doing. Jesus is their source of power. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, right? Acts 1, 8, he says, um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. The idea in the text is as you witness, you will be empowered. So this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus also promised in Matthew 28. He says, um, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And then he says, and as you go, I will be what? With you always, even to the end of the age. It's an incredible promise. Power and presence. But we should take note, God empowers those who live on mission for him. The power of his presence is reserved for those who live for his purpose. We will experience God in power when we join him in mission. I think that's what we see in this text is. Uh, That Christ Jesus is their power. If you want to know the power of God, give yourself fully to his mission. So when we see this phrase, the hand of the Lord was with them. I just want you to think for a moment, what does the hand of Jesus do? Well, here's what we know. 
the hand of this Jesus touches the leper and brings healing to his skin and restoration to his soul. A man who was outcast, who was pushed aside, Jesus touches. Jesus touches the blind, rubs his thumbs in their eyes and they see miraculously. Jesus speaks to the dead and they come alive. Jesus' hand brings the spiritually dead to life as well. He speaks over you and me and and our, our spirit man comes alive. Salvation. His hand is gathering a people from every culture and tribe and tongue into his kingdom. That's what we're watching unfold in this book. His hand is removing the heart of stone from you and from me and placing in a heart that will love him and love his law. Jesus is working. He's still working. I heard somebody say this week, God can do more in five minutes than you or I could do in five years. Yield to him. Let's be yielded to the Lord Jesus. What would God do with a church that yields to the hand of Jesus? Just a quick couple of notes here. Um, I want you to ask the question, who is starting this movement in Antioch? Who is it? Is Is there a name given in the text? The Bible says, but there were some of them in verse 20. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is an island uh, in the Mediterranean. And Cyrene is a a large uh, region in Africa, northern Africa. So we've got men from this island and men from Africa that have now come all the way to northern Syria, to Antioch, to share the gospel. But we don't know their names, do we? All the Bible says in verse 20 is some of them... And then verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. We don't know who they are. We don't have a clue who they are. It's just them. I love this truth. It goes, it ties us back to this idea that that they are so Christ-centered that it doesn't matter who's leading this movement. It doesn't matter who it is. It's not about making their name great. It's about making Jesus' name great. There's incredible humility here in these leaders to remain personally anonymous. And it reiterates the idea that this is all about Jesus. To be at the ground level of the greatest global mission movement of all time and to go down in biblical history as them. Wow. Right? I mean... Oh, that we would be them. For the kingdom of God. No need for accolade. No need for recognition. Let's just point everybody's affection and attention to Jesus. Let's be them for our king. May we be willing to be nameless in our pursuit of Christ. Somebody once said, it's a glorious thing to be a nobody 
who tells everybody about somebody who will save anybody. I like that. Let's be nobodies who tell everybody about somebody, Jesus, who will save anybody. At Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. Did you notice that in your Bible? This is the first time we have that word in the New Testament, the word Christian. Now, it's a popular word today, right? I mean, we have this idea of Christian as a, as a term across the spectrum. Many of us might have that on, on your uh, social media profile. I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a Christian. And that's fine. But just so you know, that word is only in our Bibles three times. Did you know that? It's only in your Bible three times. And all three times, it is someone else calling the Jesus people Christian. And two of those times, it's derogatory. They mean it like a slander, like a slur. You Christian. That was the way it was said. But here's the deal behind that. They, they couldn't figure out what else to call them. These people weren't Jews. You know, they'd not been circumcised. They didn't care anything about following the Jewish ceremonial law. And they were no longer Gentile by custom. They had walked away from all of the things that used to define them. They weren't Jews. They weren't Gentiles. What do we call these people? Christian. Little Christ. Christians only used three times in the Bible. The word disciple or follower is used 272 times. Just by way of contrast. These outsiders saw believers and they couldn't figure out how to identify them. They were Jesus people. Their love for Jesus, devotion to Jesus, imitation of Jesus, constant talking about Jesus, their willingness to suffer for Jesus. It gave them a whole new identity. Is Jesus man or Jesus woman your dominant identification marker. This church was radically Christ-centered. And the church God uses is, secondly, discipleship-driven. Now, the church in Jerusalem, when the news of an outbreak of Christianity happened in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem was like, whoa, we need to go check this out. Just like they did when Philip was preaching to the Samaritans. Uh, they sent Peter and John. The same thing happens uh, now. They're sending Barnabas north from Jerusalem north about 300 miles to Antioch. Barnabas gets to Antioch and the Bible says something phenomenal. In verse 23 it says, When he came he saw the grace of God and he was glad. What did Barnabas see? What Barnabas saw was miraculous. He saw people who had been so far from God, had no concern for God, no desire for God, no hunger for God. He saw people respond to the gospel with radical faith. A people that not long ago had no access to God. We're now worshiping the one true God 
glorifying God in the name of Jesus Christ. Barnabas saw how the suffering of God's people after Stephen's murder had not stomped out their fire, but only spread it. Barnabas saw how God's grace was outrunning them. He was, God was outrunning their best efforts at sharing the gospel. He was ahead of them at every turn. The church was growing, but not because of them, because of the Spirit of God, the grace of God. The hand of the Lord was on them. But Barnabas knew that salvation and this grace was only the beginning, not the end of the race. It was the start of the race. And if you're new to following Christ, if you've become a believer in Jesus in just recent years even, I want you to know that's not the end of the journey. That's the starting blocks of the journey. That's being born again is what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. And that's the beginning point of life in Christ. It's not the end. It's the beginning. And so Barnabas says, he looks around. He's like, this is amazing. But these people need to be discipled. And so this church is discipleship driven. Barnabas knew this explosion of growth would need intentional investment. So he exhorts this new group of believers. He says, I'm exhorting you to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We'll talk about those two things really quickly. When you hear the word faithful, I want you to think about faithful in terms of marriage, in terms of an intimate relationship. Faithful in terms of marriage. If I say, well, I've been faithful to my wife, you know what I mean. What I mean is I have not cheated on her. That's what we mean when, when, when Barnabas says to these people, he says, remain faithful. What he's talking about is let your affections and your attention and your love be for one. Don't go back to all your other loves. Remain faithful to Jesus. Christ doesn't want to share our affections. He wants it all. And Barnabas is calling these new believers to go all in with Jesus. You know that expression, right? I learned that expression in seminary, believe it or not. <laughs> what it means to sit at the table and push the pennies. What we play with, push the pennies all in. I knew that meant this is either where I'm doubling up or I'm out. Right? What Barnabas is saying to them is go all in with Jesus. Don't hold back for something else. Nothing else is worth it. Be faithful. Go all in. And the second thing he says to them is to remain steadfast in purpose. What, what purpose is he talking about? Well, our purpose is very similar to Jesus's purpose. Jesus said about himself that he came to seek and to save the lost. Now, ours is similar to his. Jesus is the Savior, and we are the ones who announce who He is. We're the ones who say, the Savior has come. Look to Christ. We're sent to make Jesus known. He was sent to be salvation. We were sent to bear the news of salvation. We are sent 
to point the hurting to the healer. We're sent to call on our chain breaker to set captives of addiction free, right? We are sent to tell those who are in love with the world where true and lasting pleasure really is. We're sent to shout that Jesus is the only hope to save sinners like me. That's our message. And Barnabas says, stay faithful to Jesus and remain on purpose. Well, how are they going to do that? Only through discipleship. Only if someone shows them who this Savior truly is. Only if the, the, the tree of new faith grows really deep roots. And so discipleship is the root work that is necessary for real faith to bear fruit. Barnabas knew these new believers needed to know God in deep ways. They needed doctrine. They needed theology. He knew they needed to know the God in whom they believe. I wonder, how well do you know your God? How deep do your roots of faith truly go? This was so important to Barnabas that he actually left Antioch and went over to Tarsus. He traveled a good distance because he thought to himself, these people need a teacher. They need somebody to teach them the law and teach them who Christ really is. But that's not me. I need to go get the best teacher I know. Who would that be? And Barnabas travels to go get a man named Saul. He knew that Saul was the teacher that could take them to the depths of the truth. There's something to be said here about Barnabas' leadership. He knows his own skill sets. He's an encourager. He's a leader with generosity. He's, he's a shepherd. He pulls people together. He's an advocate for others. But he knows these people need a teacher. And great leaders know who they are. And they know who they're not. And a great leader is willing to say, you need someone else. I'm going to go get him. I think there's a lesson here for us. and We don't have time for it, but let me just say this. In this church, we need each other. Amen? There's no one person who can do it all. Everyone in this room is meant to carry some of the load. Carry your part of it. Whatever it is God's given you to do, whatever skill set you have in your hands, use it for his glory. So Barnabas goes to get Saul. This church at Antioch is a collaborative effort. I want to say just a, a moment here about suffering because I see the sovereignty of God in suffering. And I think we, we need a word on this. You realize who Saul is, right? Barnabas goes to get Saul. Now, how did this church in Antioch start? Well, it started with Saul murdering Stephen. Saul is the one standing, holding the coats, and he's nodding in approval as the men stone Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. Saul approved of his murder and then he launched the most fierce persecution they'd seen 
up to this point, taking people, pulling people out of their houses and having them thrown in jail. Anybody that was a follower of the way, all the Jesus people, he was out to get them. Saul's persecution caused the spread of the gospel, get this, that ultimately planted the church in Antioch where Saul would now be the lead teaching pastor. The irony is just too much, right? It's not irony, it's sovereignty. And we need to see that our God is sovereign even over our suffering. Brothers and sisters, suffering is inevitable. But God's mission is unstoppable. And what we see here is that God will even ordain and use the suffering of his saints to spread the gospel of his glory. By the way, suffering is the core of the Christian faith. We would have no Christianity if it were not for a suffering Jesus. We're saved by the suffering Savior. And the good news of our Savior often spreads best through suffering servants. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread it. When the faithful suffer with enduring joy, the world can't make much sense of it. Only Jesus explains that kind of hope and joy. So church, let's suffer well. When suffering comes, let's suffer well to the glory of our King. Thinking back about this church in Antioch, what kind of investment are you making into your faithfulness to Christ and your continuing on His purposes? How much time do you give to the study of God's word? How much time do you spend being taught God's word? If this Sunday sermon is all you get each week, that's not a healthy diet. I mean, think about if you only ate one time a week, your body would not be in good shape. And the same is true of your spirit, man. You need deep nourishment and we get nourishment in the word of God and the fellowship of the people of God through the spirit of God. Jesus said he's the bread of life. Jesus said he's the living water. So church, I bid you feast on him. Drink of Christ. Devote yourself to a diet of knowing Christ and the fellowship of his church. At Mountain View, um, at this church, we're working toward more and more life groups, D groups, small groups, environments where more and more of us are plugging into just a small community of friends and brothers and sisters. COVID has not made that easy. It's difficult. But just to bring clarity, a life group is just a gathering of families, of people who meet together just to build relationships. A D group is different. It's a small cluster of men or a small cluster of women that gather to study the Bible, to challenge each other over sin issues, to uh, hold one another accountable, to encourage each other to live on mission. This is where those roots grow deep. And I'd like for more and more of us to plug in to life groups and D groups. Because we believe that real discipleship only happens in real relationship. 
So I want to encourage you as we grow, we need to grow smaller in our relationships. If you're interested in getting involved, put that on one of those cards and uh, make sure your name and information is on that. Make sure I get it before you leave today. I'd like to talk with you about how you can get more involved in that. So the Antioch church was devoted to knowing Christ in the scriptures. That was how they began. That's how the roots went deep. And the third way, the third thing, the church that God uses is Christ-centered, is discipleship-driven, and it is others-focused. The church God uses is others-focused. We see at the end of this chapter that the Lord sends word uh, through a prophet named Agabus that some difficult days are coming. There's going to be a famine And this new Gentile church, this brand new one year old church responds with grace and blesses those in Judea. I just think for a moment now, this is a church that um, as it's beginning, Jerusalem is skeptical more than likely and sends Barnabas to kind of go, "Okay, you need to check that thing out. Check it out. And one year later. This church is sending money back to the church in Jerusalem to support them through a famine. How amazing is that? Let me tell you this. There are two responses to trouble. We've seen this in, re- in, our, in our lives every day here the last many months. Um, two natural responses to trouble. The first one is to hoard. Our natural bent is to take care of O number one, right? Let me take care of me. Self-preservation is the default of the flesh. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's toilet paper, Lysol, hand sanitizer. I mean, do, do we need to go on, right? <laughs> hoard. This is how we respond to trouble in our flesh. We hoard. How? Oh, wow, this is going to be bad. I better take care of me. So we hoard. Well, this is where Jesus people, Christians, must deny ourselves, as Jesus said. Any man who wants to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. To claim Christ as God, we must first get off that throne and stop serving ourselves. Jesus The Apostle Paul rather says it this way about Christ in Philippians 2 verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So one way is to hoard. The second thing is to help. We either hoard or we help. So our supernatural disposition in Christ is to think of others first. That verse Philippians 2 3 has this little phrase in it. Count others more. I think that's huge. So this church in Antioch, when they hear the news of a coming famine, they step right into trouble and send relief. We ought to be looking for opportunities to be a practical help to those around us. That's one of the reasons I think it's beautiful that Habitat is here representing today. Uh, Shameless plug, ladies. Um. We ought to be looking for practical ways as Jesus people to be a blessing in our community. I imagine Barnabas had a lot to do with this. He was probably the first one to 
to empty his pockets. You know, he's a generous giver. We, we first heard of Barnabas in Acts 4, sold all of his property and gave the money to the church. I imagine he's leading the charge with this generosity, modeling for them, modeling for this brand new baby church, what it means to love Jesus by loving the world. So he's maybe the pace setter, but this church made personal sacrifices. They worked together. They were others focused in their generosity. The church should be where many find hope because it is where they've found help. Listen, we should be the place where many find hope in Jesus because they've found help in Jesus's people. So Barnabas taking the lead. This church rallies to help alleviate the suffering of people they've never even met, possibly even people who would have rejected them. But they give with the generosity that only comes from Christ. This church is the only or rather the church. You've heard me say this before. The church is the only organization that exists for those outside of it. We must be constantly looking outward with eyes up, hearts ready and welcoming new people into the family. We welcome them through the gospel of Jesus. When God adopts people, we accept people. I do want to say this and we'll close here. The greatest help we have to give is the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. As the church, we care about all suffering. Especially eternal suffering. That's a quote from John Piper. So let me say that again. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Charles Spurgeon said this. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them not to go. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of all of our exertions and let not one of them go there unwarned or unprayed for. The church of Jesus should rally to the help of a suffering people, yes, in practical ways. But much more so, we should rally to help alleviate eternal suffering with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church at the end of chapter 11 is sending relief. But by chapter 13, they will be sending missionaries. May it be so of us. May we not neglect one for the other. May we do both in the name of Jesus for his glory. Church, I want to ask you four quick questions as we go. One, are you yielded to the hand of God? Are you yielded? To the hand of God. Two. Are you remaining faithful? Faithful. Like, like a good bride. Are you remaining faithful to Jesus. And resolved to his purposes. His purposes. Three. Are you being discipled? So that you look more and more like Christ. The roots of your faith. How deep do they go? 
Lastly, are you happy to give so that others will be helped and so that they'll know the hope of the gospel? Are we happy to give? It ought to be our joy to give for the glory and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ.